Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Samuel Fury Childs Daly is Assistant Professor of African and African American Studies at Duke University. He is a historian of 20th century Africa, whose research bridges East and West Africa, combining the methods of legal, military, and social history to understand the period after independence. Today, we'll be discussing his work, A History of the Republic of Biafra, Law, Crime, and the Nigerian Civil War. Professor Daly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Siobhan. It's a real pleasure to be speaking with you today. To begin, could you briefly give an overview of what your book is about? Sure. So the book is about the Nigerian Civil War, which took place between 1967 and 1970. And in particular, it's about the relationship between the history of this war and the way that it was fought and a larger story about the proliferation of crime in post-colonial Nigeria. So this story emerges from a legal archive from the Secessionist Republic of Biafra. And this is an archive that is piecemeal and scattered and also very profoundly endangered. But cases from Biafra's courts provide an entree into a kind of internal account of the Nigerian Civil War, which was a war that was critical not only for Nigeria in this period, but for a larger sense of how we understand the relationship between warfare and violence, and I would add also crime, in post-colonial Africa. So the Civil War began with the secession of the eastern region of Nigeria as the Republic of Biafra in May of 1967. And Biafra seceded in the name of protecting the lives and interests of Igbos, who are an ethnic group who call the eastern region home. And this secession took place in the aftermath of a series of pogroms against them in 1966. So over the course of the 20th century, Igbos had come to constitute a kind of internal diaspora in Nigeria. They were what Yuri Sleskin has called Mercurians. They were an entrepreneurial minority who had a sometimes acrimonious relationship with the majorities they lived amongst. And ultimately, it was this act of, of violence against the Igbo people that drove the eastern region to secede. And Nigeria was not willing to just let the eastern region go its separate way, as you would imagine. And the Nigerian federal government staged uh, what it initially called a police action to reclaim the eastern region, which quickly escalated into a, a full-on civil war. And in the two and a half years that followed, Biafra was blockaded, it was heavily bombarded by Nigeria, and a humanitarian crisis emerged there, which stunned the outside world, and which Biafra called genocidal. So Biafra would eventually surrender in January of 1970. But by this point, the human cost of the war had become enormous. And Biafra was, was reintegrated into Nigeria through a very contentious and very drawn-out process that remains a source of grievance and bitterness to this day. So it's now been 50 years since the end of the war, and the war has most frequently been written about, when it's been written about at all by historians, as a chapter in the history of international humanitarianism, or as kind of a strange episode in the Cold War in which both the U.S. and the USSR were on the same side, mainly Nigeria. Um, and it's also been treated as a 
an episode that is relevant for the legal question of how genocide is treated. And it is all of those things, and it's important for all of those reasons, to be sure. But in this book, I focused on the legacy that was that is internal to Nigeria, and which is often elided in these international approaches, and that is its connection to the practice of crime. So I argue that the pressures of the war and the kinds of circumstances that were created by mass hunger and the entropy of the Biafran state as it fell apart under the pressure of the war, these conditions made a space for new and alarming types of crime to flourish in Biafra, especially fraud and armed crime, which in many cases were also survival tactics. So fraud in particular was a way of dealing with risk. Uh, People cultivated uncertainty about themselves to ensure their survival, to kind of throw off the scent of people who might be pursuing them, or to make sure that they couldn't be found if someone came looking for them along the war front, which was a very dangerous place, both for Nigerians and Biafrans who lived along it. So the categories of crime that thrived along the war front and that made up the bulk of the Biafran court's caseloads included things like forgery, armed robbery, and also this category of fraudulent activities that is collectively known as 419, after the number of the section of the Biafran and also Nigerian criminal code that prohibited it. So you might be familiar with 419 today as this form of advanced fee fraud that is conducted over the internet, usually over email. But I argue that this form of fraud, which we so associate with modern technology, is genealogically related to forms of fraud that emerged on the Biafran battlefield. And it's not coincidental that these particular kinds of crime and misconduct, which were so present in Biafra, would become the scourge post-war Nigerian life in the 70s and 80s. Because after the war, these forms of crime intensified and they spread beyond the borders of the former Republic of Biafra. And it was this suite of criminal activities, which were interrelated with one another in complicated ways, that gave Nigeria the global reputation for fraud and violence that it is still trying to shake off today. So a big question that this book asks is about what warfare does to normative orders. Warfare often involves lying. It often involves double crossings, producing and exchanging forged uh, documents, assuming false identities, And all of these things are are more or less normal behaviors when espionage and survivalism and victory are the orders of the day. But in certain circumstances, and in certain circumstances, those things might even be seen as, as patriotic duties. But what happens when those behaviors don't end with the end of the fighting? If these practices continue in peacetime once the war is over, they tend to be called fraud rather than you know, getting by or survivalism or even duty. And there's a similar story to be told about armed crime as there is about fraud. You know, in the heat of battle, a soldier might legitimately requisition property from civilians in some circumstances, and certain areas of law will recognize that as legitimate. But if he goes back and tries to do that in peacetime, most courts would consider that to just be theft. So A large part of my objective in this book is to show how the particular structural conditions of the Nigerian civil war blurred these boundaries between what was crime and what wasn't. And the war made a space for forms of criminality and violence 
that kind of hadn't been there before. And I want to show this in a granular and specific way, which works against larger, more totalizing theories of how violence works and what it looks like, especially in Africa. What aspects of the history of the Republic of Biafra are you able to illuminate from the vantage point of the courtroom? How does taking criminal law in particular as your point of entry shape your history? So the criminal legal court offers a lot of resources to those who want to study social history and to study the history of war as well. The very fact that Biafra had courts and a functional legal system at all will probably come as a surprise to some people, given the dominant image of this war that has come down to us in the present is not a well-ordered courtroom. It is not an image of a judge in a wig like the one that appears on the cover of the book. Rather, the enduring image of Biafra is famously the image of a starving child. And I think that that image does a certain disservice to a full picture of what happened in Biafra. And one of the things that happened in Biafra, quite importantly, was law. Biafra very much did have courts, and in some respects, it actually had little else besides them, at least in the realm of government. In fact, the law was extremely important in Biafra, and the legal system was at the center of its political and administrative culture. And it was also at the center of its national ethos, of its sense of itself as a place that had been born of Nigeria, and born of a Nigeria specifically that was lawless and anarchic, and which had allowed this violence to take place against Igbos in the first place. So law in these circumstances in Biafra became more than just a mechanism for resolving disputes or for dispensing justice in some abstract sense. It was also what made Biafra work, and it was increasingly the only functional part of the Biafran state apparatus as the war chipped away at everything else. So in the final stages of the conflict, Biafra became a funny kind of state in that effectively it consisted of a court system with an army attached to it. So toward the end of the war, trials were held in the shelves of bombed out buildings or under the shade of trees, and proceedings were recorded by hand on pieces of scrap paper or in children's exercise books. And to read these very grim narratives about violence and crimes of survival that are recorded in this way that gives us such a sense of what it was like to be at a Biafran trial is very affecting. And it's an illustration, I think, of how the materiality of the archive that, that a historian uses can sometimes say as much as the words that that archive records, which I'll talk about in a minute. There's also a big point here about the state and about what legal records and, and criminal legal records particularly reveal about it. So even a state that was as skeletal and as embattled as Biafra had a legal order. And it also had the capacity to pursue people in a criminal court. The Biafran state had internal factions. It had an administrative philosophy, and a debate about that philosophy took place. It had a political culture. And all of these things are visible in the fragmentary remains of its legal record. So if this chaotic place can have a meaningful and distinct form of law, I think it stands to reason that other African nation states including ones that were much more tangible and much more lasting than Biafra, would as well. 
So this book is a kind of bid for the importance of studying the inner life of African states after independence. African states and their legal systems are not just a kind of curse. They're not an imposition. They're not a black hole. They're not purely a colonial construct. They are things that historians need to take seriously if we're to understand the broader history, both social and political, of Africa after independence. How does your work reframe understandings of criminality, past and present, in Nigeria? I think a lot of historians resist treating crime as a thing that is real. There's a fear that even talking about crime will give credence to the things that are done in the name of suppressing it. And indeed, crime is a, is a powerful political tool that states often turn against their citizens, by which I mean governments use the problem of crime to warrant discrimination against certain categories of people and to induce the kind of fear that gives them a blank check for repression, to do anything that they want to do in the name of suppressing this threat that is crime, in kind of scare quotes. But crime also has a social history, and it's not just an epiphenomenon of something else, or it's not always that. It is something that people do and experience, and the fact that it can be politically instrumentalized doesn't preclude it from also being an important feature of daily life and social history. So the danger, I think, in studying crime is that when crime is treated as something that explains, rather than something to be explained as a historical phenomenon, it takes historians into all kinds of politically dangerous terrains and into cul-de-sacs. Another argument of the book is that the patterns that seem to appear in crime are often a mirage. So those patterns, which are almost invariably tied to race and class and gender, are, in my view, a crutch that politicians and social scientists use to make sense of crime. But the harder thing to grapple with is that each criminal act is a singularity. And in a time of crisis like a war, the rules that we might think we have for understanding who commits crime and why just melt away. And you see that happening very clearly in Biafra records. So in Biafra, you had rich and poor alike turning to fraud. You had categories of people that judges did not think were criminally disposed engaging in crime. You had young women being involved in armed robberies. These things broke the tools that judges had at their disposal for understanding crime in a sociological sense. And I think that war is not the only context in which that happens. So crime, I argue, was not just an alibi for repression, and Biafrans and Nigerians experienced it as a real and obdurate social problem, one that is worth taking seriously as an object of analysis. And the purpose of this book is to pull back the curtain and to reveal how crime operated both in social life and in politics, but without just saying that crime is a figment of the state imagination. Criminal law is not inherently tyrannical, but the question of whether it was just or not was, of course, a matter of perspective. Police and criminals could be both villains and heroes, often simultaneously, and seeing them as one or the other occludes the dialectical relationship that exists between law and crime, which is a relationship that probably exists everywhere in some form or another, 
but is especially salient in late 20th century Africa. What methods did you use to construct your history? And what are some lessons that might be drawn from your experiences that the broader history profession should consider when thinking about sources and method? What about legal historians in particular? This project made me think about the materiality of documents in ways that I think most historians of the late 20th century don't. So the materials I was working with were, as I said, extremely scattered and partial. But there was really nothing else to work from, in terms of the written record at least, uh, if you wanted to tell a social history of Biafra. Most of Biafra's state records were summarily destroyed after the war in the name of reconciliation and kind of moving on with the past. And legal records, to the extent that they were spared or when they were spared, were mostly spared for practical reasons. Why they were preserved in one court or another is not always clear. Some seem to have been maintained because it just wasn't worth the trouble of, you know, disposing of them. Others, especially civil records, which form a smaller but nonetheless significant part of the documents for this book as well, were probably kept because a registrar thought that somebody might one day be interested in the record of, say, their divorce proceedings, uh, even if the Biafran stamps that were all over those documents rendered them formally useless for most purposes in post-war Nigeria. So all of these records are irregularly organized, they are very incomplete, and they are also deteriorating. And perhaps because they're so thoroughly forgotten, or because they're not the kind of documents that have value to legal practitioners in the present, I generally found that the custodians of these materials allowed me to use them fairly freely. And those custodians work in very difficult circumstances to preserve them, and it's really an uphill battle to kind of keep them intact. And the fact that they are still intact 50 years later is remarkable. There is no court for which I have anything like a complete record. Of course, you know, legal records are always partial. There's no such thing as a complete legal archive. I can't even imagine what that would look like. It'd probably be some sort of, you know, Borgesian space. <laughs> but in this case, we're really talking about fragments. And the fact that these records are so dispersed and so decaying, I think actually reveals something about the state of Biafra and its afterlife. Biafra's legacy is submerged. So it's not surprising that its paper trail is going to be halting and difficult for the historian to follow. And that fact itself became a kind of lodestar for me as I was conducting this research. Some of the meaning of these archives is contained in where they are kept and what condition they're in and how they're accessed. So it kind of makes sense that a state that vanished would have an archive that felt like it didn't want to be found. So the criminal archive also gives us vivid reminders of the social history that is embedded in it. Occasionally, when I was turning through a criminal case file, I would find an exhibit uh, or a piece of evidence that somebody had forgotten to remove. This might be a piece of cloth with a blood stain on it or a picture of a crime scene. These things were always disconcerting to find, but they were reminders that criminal case files are not just stories. They are artifacts of real tragedies that should be treated with a lot of care and respect. Sometimes I find myself getting lost in the minutiae of the law in its own emic categories and debates. 
But then I find these kinds of things, and I'm reminded that each case file is the shadow of a real relationship or an event or a wound. And it is from that that I think my predisposition as a social historian kind of follows. Documents like these have an aura, independent of what they actually say. My other main source consists of oral interviews, mostly with people who worked as lawyers in Biafra and post-war Nigeria. So part of the project is a historical ethnography of the legal profession, which has implications for the larger story of the role of lawyers in decolonization, which Biafra is you know, an unusual but not totally exceptional example of. Judges in post-colonial Africa had a complicated relationship with British law, and decolonizing law could mean many different things. The legal system that African states inherited at independence was not a single apparatus. It was a kit with lots of different parts and tools that judges and lawyers and also executives, presidents and that kind of thing, could keep or discard as they saw fit. And it was only really in talking to legal practitioners that I learned how they felt about the legal system that they had inherited from Biafra, uh, from Britain, excuse me. And my next book gets at this history more explicitly. And finally, I also use some international records for this book. So many countries watched Biafra very closely. The UK is the one that probably watched it the most closely. But there were others that did as well, like Ireland and France, that are less commonly discussed in Nigerian history. But I found their records, predominantly intelligence records, useful in fleshing out certain things that other records didn't capture about Biafra's internal organization and internal life. But I use those things with some reticence because the history of Biafra has usually been told from those international sources as a kind of international history. And I, I find that there are some very real limits to what can be known from those sources, at least about the social historical questions that I'm interested in. Some of the early reviews to the book have interpreted it as a rejection of international history. And I don't fully endorse that reading. I have no ax to grind with international historians. And in some respects, I consider myself to be one. But I think it's important to acknowledge the limits of using the records of foreign diplomats and charity workers to tell the story of life on the ground, so to speak. Very often, those people had very little idea of what was going on around them. And legal records, with all their silences and biases, tell us much more and more explicitly tell us about conditions as they were actually you know, felt on the ground in Biafra. And I know that the allure of the legal archive can be dangerous because legal archives are never as objective as they claim to be, of course. But compared to the kind of wild speculation that you find in propaganda or in foreign diplomatic records, which are really the only other things we have for Biafra in an archival sense, legal records offer a more grounded way to understand this historical episode, which otherwise looks like just a chaotic maw of violence with no rhyme or reason. So what can your work tell us about the relationship between the fields of legal history and social history? So I personally find it hard to separate the two. Uh, even very technical or arcane areas of law have social historical effects. And because law embraces so many areas of life, 
it's hard for me to think of a social historical question, even a very kind of internal or almost psychological one that wouldn't resonate in law somehow. But that's a bit of a platitude. And I assume that most of the listeners of this podcast will more or less agree with that in some form. More specifically, this book is a bid for the importance of legal procedure for social history, especially in Africa. African states, the African nation state, if one can make it just a the kind of thing, that state is often presumed to be too weak or too unruly or too derivative of colonialism to do things like establish standards, to maintain order, to define rights and duties. And the fact that law can have force even somewhere as inchoate as Biafra suggests that African legal systems, including Biafra, but many others as well, were more systematic and more instrumental than they've been given credit for. And legal procedure played a very prominent role in public administration. And in Nigeria, including long after the war, soldiers and civilians clung to legal institutions. Biafra is important in this respect, not because it was chaotic, but because it was actually a lot more orderly than I think most people have appreciated. And the book that I'm currently working on builds on this this observation and takes the story of law's role in administration and in social history beyond the end of the war and into the long period of military rule that followed it in Nigeria. And the finding, the story of how law worked in those circumstances is one that would be familiar to legal historians of many places. In some cases, the Nigerian legal system served to buttress the interests of the wealthy, to stem processes of social change, radical or otherwise. Law could support the idea that national identities were indivisible and that their sovereignties were real. But in other cases, law could do the opposite of all those things. So this book shows, and I think my current work furthers, that the notion that law is a discursive field of knowledge always, even in wartime. And in Nigeria, in this context, it could serve as both an instrument of repression and a tool of critique, sometimes at the same time. Well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.